You guys may be seated. Good morning, Risen Hope. Good afternoon, Risen Hope. <laughs> It'll happen eventually. Glasses are going to fog up a little bit here. Um, it's good to be with you guys this afternoon. It really is. Um, let me open with a word of prayer and ask God to be with us today. Heavenly Father, the greatest reality in the universe is Christ Jesus. Everything else pales in comparison to him. And today we've come to your word to feel something of that today, to know something of that, to let the glory of Christ Jesus from the word preached and proclaimed be embraced by my heart and my friends. So I pray that you would be here, Spirit of the living God, and that you'd come and you'd cultivate in our hearts eyes that can see the glory of Jesus in what has been written down in the scriptures and hearts that are tender and soft, that long to receive the pure spiritual milk, that we may be built up and grow up in strength and in assurance in who Christ is, Father God. I pray and ask for that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your copies of God's Word, and I hope that you do today, this is going to take me a while to get used to. So if I act a little weird, it's because this isn't a music stand. Um, um, please, I hope that you have them. Take, the, take your Bibles. Turn with me to, uh, to John 3, verse 25. And that's where we're going to be uh, at the start of our time today. Last week, we saw, if you were with us or, or, or were able to watch it online, we saw that, uh, that uh, some of John the Baptist's disciples come to him and they express concern that, that Jesus, the very one who, who John himself had called the Christ, uh, in chapter 1 of this book that we're reading through, um, Jesus has been baptizing people. That's a big problem for them. This is not part of the categories that they have in their minds. Um, verse 27, for example, in John 3 says, All were going to him. They saw that their master's ministry was diminishing. They saw that in comparison to Jesus, John the Baptist, <coughs> the one that they had come to to learn from, was, was starting to go into the background, and this bothered them. Um, and when they bring it up to him, his response is remarkable. So I want to read this passage from verse 25 in John 3 all the way to verse 30. And follow me as we go through this response from John the Baptist. Uh, it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. <clears throat> so after having this conversation about purification, John's disciples are 
concerned Jesus is attracting more crowds than their master John, even though he bore witness to Jesus as being the Christ, they're concerned here. John swiftly responds. He's not concerned at all about Jesus's popularity, not one bit. In fact, he is thrilled by it. And not only that, none of this is surprising to him. This, he explains it in this, this very basic spiritual principle. He says that no one can really receive anything unless it is given to them from heaven. In other words, God must grant to the human heart the capacity even to receive something, even to, to have a, a desire to, to have it. And John is saying here effectively that God is sovereign that the kind of God that John preaches and proclaims is sovereign, not in just some nebulous or or, um, vague way, but he's saying that God is sovereign over all things, over the repentance of sinners when in his own ministry he's proclaiming the coming Christ. God is sovereign over the new birth experience that we've been looking at all this chapter. It is God, ultimately, who causes these hearts to to respond, to receive, as John says here. And so God is also sovereign over the transition between John the Baptist's ministry and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. And John's point to his whole disciples is, why should you expect anything different? He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm only here to prepare the way for the Christ. Now that he's here, my work is almost complete. My work is almost finished. And then he makes this really amazing analogy. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today, is this analogy of a wedding. And and a few weeks ago, actually, it was quite a while ago, now that I remember it, but a while back, we looked at the wedding of Cana in John 2. And we saw this imagery of John the Baptist, or this imagery of the bridegroom surface in that uh, scene, that event that happens with Jesus. And John here is refocusing our ten- attention and our mind on this imagery of the bridegroom and the bride. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, referring to Jesus. And then he calls himself merely a friend of the bridegroom, just a friend who stands and hears the bridegroom speak and rejoices greatly. In fact, he says, that now that the bridegroom has come, my joy is complete. My joy is, is complete. It is filled up. That's what Jesus' arrival means to John the Baptist. His joy has been filled to the brim. He's thrilled that people are going to Jesus. He's not upset in the least. He's, he's the bridegroom. Why would, why would they not go to him? The bridegroom, he says, must increase, and John, the friend of the bridegroom, must decrease. And so here's the question we have today is, why this analogy of the wedding? Why this analogy of a marriage scenario between God and the people who are are going to him? Out of all the ways that John the Baptist could have depicted the relationship between Jesus and his people, why choose this way? Why go this path? And the reason why, I believe we'll see today, is that weddings and marriage, the concept, the reality of marriage, is central to the story of mankind. It is the first story, and it is the last story. And it has dominated every age in between for people who are married and for people who are single. 
for adults and for children. This reality is, is across history, and John knows this. He knows that the concept that we call marriage is a reality that every single person has felt in some way. We, we've experienced or seen it or understand it. We know what the concept of marriage is. They understand the premise of, of a man and a woman being joined together in love because it has been a reality in human history since the very beginning when God first made man. And to understand what John means here when he talks about Jesus in this way, we need to go back to the beginning with him. We need to go back to the time where God laid down the first stones in this foundation called mankind, mankind's origins and their existence. And so if you could turn with me to Genesis, 20, or Genesis 2, uh, verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15. Here, God has, as you're turning there, let me give you some background. God has just created Adam, man, out of the dust of the ground, scooped up dust, made man, breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and then verse 15 picks up God's conversation with, with, with Adam, with man. <clears throat> listen, to what God's, or listen to what happens here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he had brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Then uh, the author, the inspired author, says this about what has just happened in the pages of Scripture. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So human history began with a wedding between a man and a woman, with a man leaving his father, so to speak, and holding fast to his wife and making them, the two of them, one flesh. That's how the story of man begins. That's how God wrote the story of man, with a wedding. It says here that God created Adam first. He does not immediately create Eve until later. He could have created them at the same time, but he doesn't. Even though he admits here that it is not good for Adam, for man to be alone, he does not create Eve at the same time. Now, why is that the case? Let's think about it for a second. Verse 18, God makes the judgment 
that it is not good for man to be alone. This is the first time he says something is not good in the Bible. It's not good that Adam is on his own. He's alone. <laughs> and, and the reason why is because God wants to make it clear that he had always intended for Adam to have a wife. This isn't a change of plans for God. This isn't something new. He didn't just discover that he needs to make Eve here. He wants to make it clear that Eve is necessary for this equation that he has. And so after parading all these animals in front of Adam for names, undeniably proving that absolute, absolutely nothing in creation, despite all the glory that the created world possesses, could be a suitable partner for man. After that scene, he creates woman. He creates Eve from Adam. He pulls a piece out of Adam, a rib, and he makes Eve. And then he brings her before Adam like a father, bringing his daughter to her bridegroom. And the man and the woman are married. And so God is intentionally showing us here a wedding. That's why these things are oriented in this way. He wants us to see Adam's thrill, Adam's joy, um, in his wife. Think about what Adam says here. He says this at last. He sees Eve and he says this at last as though he had been waiting for her forever. He's in love with her. Every other creature was brought before him, shown to him. He names them. He recognizes what they are. But the one thing that he is stunned by into actual speech is this girl, this woman, Eve. And if we're honest, we can recognize because of who Adam is right now, because he is untouched by sin right now. You and I have never loved anyone like Adam loves Eve right now in this passage. We've never experienced that kind of love. She is glorious to him, and it isn't tainted by any selfish desires. It isn't tainted by any ulterior motives. It isn't tainted by any kind of sin because it hasn't happened to him yet. He sees her, and she sees him, and the love that they have is completely pure, which is why the scriptures say they were naked and yet unashamed, which means that there is not a single thing in her or for her in him, physically, emotionally, socially, any category you can think of, that they desire to be different. They want them just the way they are. They are perfect the way they are. And this is not because they're naive, young lovers. This is because their love is pure and real. And so right here, this is the foundation for all marriage in the world. Every kind of marriage that aligns to this comes from this root. This is God's definition of what it means to be married. And then something you all know, tragic happens and literally everything falls apart. Let me continue with verse one of chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the, in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. So let's remember as we process just what happens here at the beginning of chapter 3. Before Eve was created, before Adam cleaved to Eve as his wife, God gave Adam specifically a weighty and glorious responsibility to keep the garden. That's the entire point of Genesis 2.15, is that Adam would recognize his role as keeping the garden before even Eve was created. God gave him one prescription, one commandment of something not to do. The tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, never eat of that tree. Do not eat of that tree because the day that you eat of it, Adam, is the day that you die. That was the only prescription that we see here in the text. And this warning that God gave to Adam, we have to ask, why did it happen like this? Think about, think about how the, the beginning chapters of Genesis are oriented. Why did it happen like this? Why not warn both of them after Eve was created? Or why not create them both at the same time? Why does the warning come first to Adam? And the reason, as we see through the rest of Scripture, and we're going to see in a second, is God holds Adam ultimately responsible. In fact, just after this scene where they both fall, God comes and goes to Adam. Where are you, Adam? Doesn't ask Eve, even though he knows that Eve sinned. Doesn't look for the serpent first. He goes to Adam first and asks him, where are you? God holds Adam ultimately responsible. Adam is accountable for the garden, and he's accountable to God for Eve, who God gave Adam. Even though she is joined to him as his partner, even though they have equal dignity, equal worth being made in the image of God, he's the one that is responsible to God in this scene. And so Adam, in his love and commitment to God, was given the charge to protect the garden, protect Eve, to keep it, and he didn't. And this isn't because, and I want to make it clear, this is not because Eve is any less intelligent. This is not because Eve has any less capability or, or dignity or inferior in any way. That is not at all the situation here. It is Adam's duty to protect the garden. It was his job. God created him first for this very reason to show this. He was to sacrificially love and protect Eve from any threat no matter the cost to himself, and yet he doesn't. She's deceived by the serpent, and he follows in her footsteps, and both of them disobey this command to God. And obviously from this single tragedy, death violently enters into human history. The sin is so horrific. Sin itself is so horrific. And the curse that God issues in response to this one sin is so ruinous that it effectively takes the entire cosmos up into its arms and breaks it. And it won't be the same again. Our world, I mean, look outside. <laughs> the smoke is a clear testament to the fact that our world is still racked by this, the effects of this sin and every sin that's happened in response to it ages later. The Apostle Paul 
in the book of Romans, Romans 5 actually, when reflecting on the fall of man at the very beginning of human history, says this, listen to him, through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. Paul doesn't meet, mention Eve. He doesn't mention Eve. He holds Adam specifically responsible for this. And he tells us why in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2 shows us clearly why. Paul says, Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's how Paul explains this. That's how he processes what happened in the garden. Adam wasn't deceived like Eve was because God gave him the command personally. And so when Adam disobeyed, it was very different than Eve's disobedience. Adam knew what God had told him. God had told it to him face to face. And he should have protected his wife, but instead he allowed her to walk right into destruction. And he should have, instead of protecting her, he proceeded to follow her, which is perhaps why the serpent went to Eve in the first place. Think about Genesis 2, what had just happened before the fall, immediately before the fall. Um, he looks at Eve and he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The serpent knew that the key to Adam was Eve. The key to Adam's heart was Eve. He knew that if he could get Eve to sin, Adam would soon follow because tragically, Adam loved Eve more than he loved God. He loved the gift more than he loved the giver. And so the serpent here wasn't just trying to destroy the marriage. The serpent here was trying to dethrone God in Adam's heart and in Eve's heart. And he knew that if he could deceive the woman... The man who failed to protect her in the first place would follow her all the way down, bringing both of them into open rebellion against their maker. And now their eyes are open. Their eyes are open, not like opening them up from sleep where you start to see things clearly. Their eyes were opened to the blight of sin and they will never see clearly again. It says they were naked and ashamed. This is our first picture of a bridegroom and a bride, and it is beyond tra tragic. That apart from this brief moment at the very beginning of sacred beauty, it becomes a catastrophe of cosmic proportions. And Adam here, to be sure, and we've been through Romans 1, we've been through this passage in Romans 1 multiple times. Adam here is an archetype for all mankind in a lot of ways here. All of humanity's sin, ultimate sin, the root of their sin, according to Romans 1, is rejecting their creator for creation. Adam exchanged his devotion to God for love for a creature. And he got those orders mixed up and it caused all of this. But Adam isn't just an archetype for mankind. He is a type and a shadow for someone else. And this is where John the Baptist's point is made. John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom, and he refers to his people as the bride. Adam prefigures not only all husbands to come after him, but Adam prefigures the final husband, Christ Jesus, the one who was not simply a man like Adam was, but was God in the flesh. Listen to Paul explain this concept in Ephesians 5. Paul's looking back 
at the first marriage in the garden, and he quotes Genesis 2.23. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this. Listen to him. This mystery is profound. The mystery of, of marriage in reality. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, Paul's saying the reason for Adam and Eve's marriage, indeed the reason for all marriages, is to point to the reality of Christ Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. That's why marriage exists, Paul says. It's not an end in and of itself, even though it has many, numerous blessings and benefits. That is not the main reason. It is ultimately a picture of this great reality of God the Son coming into the world for his bride. And this isn't a new theme in scriptures. I mean, through the whole Old Testament, you look at Ezekiel and Isaiah and Hosea, God is constantly depicting himself as the bridegroom, as the husband, and his people as the bride. And so when John the Baptist bears witness to Israel that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Christ, he's saying the bridegroom's finally here. The bridegroom is finally here. The very reason I came is that he would be revealed to Israel. And he's saying, this, this is the entire purpose of my life. And now I can hear and see the, that I can hear and see the bridegroom. My joy is complete. They've been waiting for this bridegroom ever since the garden, and he's finally here. And Christ's entrance into this world here, we need to see this with some clarity. He's the one that Adam had always foreshadowed. He's the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians. He is the one true bridegroom who has come for his wife, except on this point. With Christ, his bride would not be a free gift from God, the Father, like it was for Adam. Instead, this price would have a cost that was beyond measuring. The bride that Christ would have would cost him his own life. If Christ wanted the church, if he wanted the church as his precious bride, if he wanted her hand in marriage, he would have to pay for it with his own blood. He would have to give his life as a ransom for her freedom. And the reason it's so costly, obviously, is what we just read about in the garden. When Adam followed Eve to the tree, instead of giving his life to protect her from it, the effect was catastrophic. Not only did sin devastate the natural world and plunge the cosmos into futility, according to Romans 8, not only did God's justice in response to how, God, how Adam had dethroned him in his heart, dethroned the giver in order to follow the, the gift to the tree, not only is that immense in its proportions and its effect, but on that tragic day, the venom of sin entered into the bloodstream of humanity for the first time. And we have never been the same again. Every single child of Adam, every single child has been infected by this evil, all of us. And so to bring humanity back from this devastation, to ransom his bride from the disease of loving creation more than the creator, Christ would also have to go to the tree for the one he loved. But this time... It would not be to participate in her rebellion, but to save her from it. 
This time it wouldn't be in defiance to his father's command, but in obedience to it, Christ would go to the tree for his wife in a different way. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us clearly, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is not an accident that Peter uses the word tree here for cross. That is intentional. Paul even spells it out much further in Ephesians 5, while giving the command to husbands to love their wives as Adam should have loved his own wife and protected her. Listen to what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in a wedding, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. To undo the trauma of sin, to redeem the bride that he loves, Christ would have to take the sins of his bride, the church, all of his people, onto his body, and then he would have to drown under the flood of God's justice so that she could be set free, so that she could be his forever. Paul says here he gave himself up, himself up. He laid down his life. He stood between her and the tree, and he said, no, I will die before I allow this to kill you. That's how he sanctifies her. That's how he purifies her. Adam went to the tree when he did at the beginning of human history to justify his wife's rebellion. But Christ goes to the tree for his wife, for us, in order to ransom us from it. That's the price he paid for the hand of his bride, the one he loves. And this is why John the Baptist says what he says. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's been waiting for her, his bride, ever since the garden, and now he's going to pay for her freedom with his own life. And just as history began with a wedding, history is going to come to an end with one final wedding. The very reason that weddings exist is because they are pointing to this last day when the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is what John the Baptist declared in the first chapter of this book, when that Lamb of God um, comes back and is married to a bride who has been cleansed from every single sin by his blood, a bride who is in complete love with him and totally devoted for him and now free for all eternity to be with him. And so as we close our time together today, I want us to reflect on this bridegroom, Christ. I want us to reflect on all that he's done. All that he's done for us, for his bride, because our bridegroom came from heaven and sought us out. From heaven he came and sought us all the way to the cross and if your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are part of that bride. You belong to him. You are his possession. And so, if your faith is in Christ and you belong in that bride, you are invited during this final song, as we're singing, to, to grab communion cup if you haven't already, and to participate in the Lord's Supper carefully in Queen, Gates, Queen Gate Baptist's uh, space. Um, and... Uh, as we take these physical elements,
we need to recognize that the physical elements are, are designed by God to anchor us into this reality of who Christ is and what he's accomplished, to anchor our minds and our hearts in what Jesus did on the cross for his bride and to remind us that one day he will return for his bride. And I promise you, he's going to come back and he's going to take what he's purchased with him. And she will be with him forever. That is a real day that's coming. And and so before I pray, I want to just briefly read to you Revelation 19 and 21, just segments of those texts. And I want to bring you to the window of eternity. And I want you to look through this window at what it's going to be like when he comes back for his bride. John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then John says in chapter 21, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, the bride, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And it says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. This is his promise for his bride. This is his promise for us. If you've been joined to him in faith, you can bank on this promise. The bridegroom will one day return and he will gather to himself his, his bride and we will be with him forever. Let's pray. Such realities boggle the mind, Father God. They are too glorious for us to hear and understand. We get an inkling of them. We see pictures of them in our own lives, in the lives of the people around us. But we cannot even begin to fathom the depth of what marriage and wedding means for every human being that is in Christ Jesus. What it means for the bridegroom to have his bride. I pray that through your word this morning and through our worship and through our time in participation, in communion and with each other, Father God, that you would entrust our hearts with as much exposure to the depths of this reality as you are willing. That we would have a sensitivity to the magnitude of what it meant for Christ to go to the tree for his wife and to die there so that she could be free. May we worship Christ for this purpose. May we adore him. May we treasure him in our lives today and for all eternity. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.